Thank you for listening to episode two of the USA Learning Lab podcast. I'm your host, Amy Leo. We get a lot of requests for examples of what collaborating, learning, and adapting looks like in practice. So in this episode, we're zeroing in on the C and CLA collaboration with three case studies. If you're tuning in for the first time and the concept of CLA is new to you, I encourage you to listen to our first episode for a good introduction. We try to be participatory sometimes, and we try to be inclusive, and we just don't get it right more often than not. I think the ethos of sport for development um, is is quite special in in the sense of collaboration with communities as well as participatory design. We also set the tone from the beginning that it was important to take off that organizational hat and that in this initiative, everybody was working together. And to me, a good collaboration is like seeing good live jazz that has that magic. To kick off our exploration of collaboration, I'm here with Jessica Ziegler, Senior Learning Specialist on the USAID Learn contract. Jessica has worked alongside several USAID missions in their effort to operationalize CLA. Jess, what do we actually mean by collaboration? When I talk with people about collaboration, a surprising number of them actually roll their eyes. And I've come to realize that it's because they've experienced a lot of attempts at working together that's either painful or pointless, or sometimes even both. And that's because Um, In a lot of cases, collaboration has come to mean just more meetings. It's come to mean having more meetings where fewer decisions actually get made and less work actually gets done. But in my mind, when we talk about the C in CLA, what we really want it to mean is something different, something where the whole is greater than the sum of the parts and we're coming together to work together to actually create value that we couldn't do on our own. I think that the key to that is really about being strategic and being intentional. For me, it's about focusing on the outcomes. What do we want to get out of the collaboration? So unfortunately, that may involve meetings. Most likely, it will involve meetings. But if we facilitate those meetings in a way that does focus on that outcome that we're hoping to achieve, and if we plan the meeting so that we're only inviting the right people into the room, the people who can actually contribute to creating the value that we want to get out of the experience, we have a lot higher chance of succeeding with that collaboration. Um, For example, if I am trying to start an initiative that I know is only going to be sustainable if it has buy-in from stakeholders, then I might try a co-creation process. On the other hand, if what I'm trying to do instead is come up with a way to have a better relationship with the host country government, what I might do is, is call a meeting and get people in a room who do have good relationships with the government and ask them and try to probe and figure out what's working for them so that I can learn some lessons from that. So for me, moving beyond meetings, I think we can think about how do we intentionally plan our collaboration to focus on the outcomes? How do we get the right people involved? And how do we set clear expectations about what we're hoping to achieve so that we can co-create that value together? I think if we can do those things, we have a lot higher chance of succeeding with collaboration and a lot fewer people rolling their eyes. Thanks for that insight, Jess. This episode features three case studies about collaboration. In our first story, an ambitious program manager applies the principles of human-centered design to workshop facilitation. Next, I'll speak with someone who is using digital storytelling to build bridges between women in South Africa. 
And third, my colleague Barry Rabin shares about facilitating a collaborative process among an unlikely group of stakeholders in Guatemala. And stay tuned for the closing in which I'll talk to Learn Chief of Party Piers Bocock about what jazz can teach us about collaboration. Rebecca Harrington of Search for Common Ground recently facilitated a co-design workshop and has insight on what the principles of human-centered design can teach us about good collaboration. Rebecca, can you tell me about your workshop? Yeah, so Breaking Barriers was, um, as you said, a co-design workshop on looking at participation and inclusion in evaluation, and in particular, complex uh, evaluation or evaluation in peace building. And so what was the problem that you were trying to solve with Breaking Barriers? That we try to be participatory sometimes, and we try to be inclusive um, in everything from program design all the way through to evaluation of programs. And we just don't get it right more often than not. Mm -hmm. Uh, We really don't get the right people in the room. I've worked on a lot of programs where it ends up being tokenism. You're just you know, oh, I consulted, you know, two local people about the wording of this survey, and they said it was fine. Well, you had the survey in English, they didn't understand what you were asking. (laughs) Like, surely that's not what we meant by participation. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's costly. Real participation and inclusion, it's, it's, it can be costly to bring all the people together in a room. Um, It can be conflict sensitive, um, and have issues with that, depending on if you're working with uh, stakeholders that have opposing ideologies or um, are facing some tension in the context in which you're working, it can be hard to just coordinate working with that many different people. And it takes more time. And these days when we have, you know, if we're lucky, 24 months to work on a project, uh, people don't feel like they, they have that urgency to just implement. Um, but you have so much more ownership over an initiative when everyone's on board, when everyone feels like they're contributing and they have a role to play um, and a much more uh, higher likelihood of sustainability. Who participated in the workshop? We had four academics, five local NGOs, a think tank, five funders, um, including you know, US-based and international funders. We had seven M&E specialists, including both local international evaluators, Uh, We had six INGOs and two membership organizations like Alliance for Peacebuilding. Mm -hmm. So a very diverse group of stakeholders in that room. Yeah, and and that is the most important part of co-design is, you know, oftentimes you've been trying to solve a problem with the same group of people. And how do you make sure you have those diverse perspectives represented, not just in their roles and responsibilities in relation to the issue that you're looking at, um, but also their sector. So we brought in people who had a focus on healthcare and education and peace building, of course, but, you know, making sure we had people who were coming at it from very different places um, and perspectives of the problem. Mm-hmm. What did you do in advance to set the tone for the work that was going to be done at the workshop? Uh, we bombarded the participants. <laughs> um, we... Uh, really set it up and really wanted to walk people through what co-design was. It's, it can be very ambiguous. Um, it's not necessarily a well-known process in international development or peace building writ large. Uh, and so we held Thursday talks, which are weekly um, or sometimes, you know, every other week webinars on uh, DME for Peace uh, around what is co-design, what is design thinking, um, 
we shared Thursday talks that we had done in the past around uh, participation and inclusion in monitoring and evaluation practice and, and findings and, and tools and methods of how to do that uh, and gave them homework, gave them uh, a nice little reading list. Um, we asked them to share photos of what is the best example, like visual example of what participation or inclusion looks like to you. And what's the worst? What's a, what's a photo that you just look at it and you're like, oh my goodness, that is what's wrong with participation and inclusion. And we use that as an exercise to connect people with what this really looks like on the ground when we see it and bring that conversation from the high level that you can kind of sit at sometimes right down to the real work that we do. So what is what do you think it is about human center design that makes a meeting into a real collaborative opportunity? Uh, two things. So I think it's part of it is the process. Um, you're taking regular problem solving, which is, you know, here's a problem. Here's the first solution I found. All right, let's go. Let's implement. Let's jump right into it. Um, and it, it pauses that and takes it a step back. And I think that process makes us reflect on what the real problem is. Mm. Oftentimes the problems we t t try to address in regular meetings, um, are symptoms and you have to take it a step back you have to empathize with the different perspectives the different people who are engaging with that problem um, whose you know work is disrupted by that problem or livelihoods uh, and and really figure out you know why is that a problem how has it emerged um, and and a problem doesn't ever have one angle or one perspective people there are other complications with it and so by starting, taking that step back and starting there, you're then able to solve for a much wider array and, and really get to the root of what needs to be solved. And so all of a sudden you went from one problem and one solution to five problems, which I promise it's not as daunting as it sounds, <laughs> but five problems and maybe 25 solutions. And then you can really start to see which ones are going to, you know, move us not just one step forward, but maybe three steps forward, or maybe there's a solution that solves multiple aspects of that problem. And it kind of helps you to see the bigger picture um, and make sure that the solutions that you get to at the end, the action items or next steps um, are inclusive, that they're, they're representing multiple stakeholders um, and they're solving the problem from you know, different angles. Do you have any examples from breaking barriers of a, a question that um, evolved into multiple questions and solutions? Yeah. So, I mean, the one that we usually uh, came back to quite often was the idea of, you know, participants not feeling ownership over uh, evaluation findings and not using them. And, you know, we both talked about this from, you know, a local participant type of perspective, but also... Um, you know, an NGO, whether it be local or international, their perspective of we did this evaluation, we have this beautiful 60 page report that has some really rich findings of how follow on programs could be improved. And it sits on someone's desk. Um, so is the problem actually that they're just not using findings? Well, no, that's a symptom. Why are they not using the findings? And so we talked through, you know, and all of the people in the room had them participate in, you know, well, why don't you use evaluations, right? I'm sure you use a few, but I can tell you, I'm an M&E specialist. Like, I don't use every evaluation that crosses my desk. Well, why? 
And we got down to the heart of it being, you know, sometimes it's about trust that because participants don't feel a part of the design of the evaluations, they don't trust the results. So they're not going to use them. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's about dissemination. And we oftentimes don't get those findings into the right hands. Um, And we also don't do it in a way that's accessible. You have a 60 page report in English. Well, maybe it needs to be a five slide PowerPoint in French. Maybe it needs to be a two-page infographic. You know, how are people going to best engage and absorb those results and reflect on it to improve programming? What were the best outcomes of the workshop when you think back on it? The best outcomes, well, first, is everyone was super engaged. Um, You never know when you bring this many diverse stakeholders together if people are going to bite And you're having them play with Legos and you're having them run around the room sometimes and really force themselves to be in uncomfortable situations in terms of trying on different hats and looking at things from different perspectives um, in a very intense, this was three days, three day, you know, sessions. Um, And so that as a facilitator is always a win. And it's, it's a necessary building step for co-design is just getting everyone really engaged in the process. I think the, the other best outcome was, you know, we did develop four concept notes that we've had reviewed by all the participants, by funders. Um, we've even, you know, hosted Thursday talks to get more global input into the concepts um, to make sure that they are feasible, um, that they do address issues in participation and inclusion uh, in evaluation and to move them from, you know, the, just this light bulb idea all the way through to something that can really be actualized. Yeah, I'm sure we all know the feeling of pouring our heart into a report and then just watching it gather dust on a shelf. Um, I really appreciate your explanation for why this happens and what can be done about it. What were some of your overall lessons learned from the breaking barriers facilitation process? We tried to Um, not just run a co-design workshop, but be co-designers ourselves in the way we're running it. And so we did feedback sessions at the end of every day. We asked participants um, what they wished was different, what they liked and what they learned. And then we used those. We debriefed and analyzed them at night um, in the wee hours of the morning and came back the next day and walked through how we would do things differently based on their feedback. Um, And one uh, very present uh, concern was around the first day. So it was three days of co-design, but we had a first like intro day um, running through some of the most recent findings around participation and inclusion and different perspectives. And the panels that we set up were by uh, volunteering only. So the participants that came volunteered if they wanted to speak or share on a specific topic. And without realizing it, the first session we had was all Westerners, like all INGOs or funder representatives. Um, And yes, it was by, you know, volunteering. We didn't want to force anyone to speak, but we should have caught that. And I think, you know, even when we try, we often fail to see the emphasis on Western interpretation of these problems. And we were trying so hard to be aware of it and make sure it was inclusive, Um, and luckily we had an amazing group of participants who called us out, like immediately after the session, raised their hands and were just like, uh, I just want you guys to realize that everyone who just spoke comes from a Western background. And the way you're talking about these problems is very like 
international NGO to working in, you know, international contexts. Um, and it was nice to be able to be called out like that um, and then pause and create space um, for the real dialogue to happen, for, for the other side to be really, truly represented and it enriched the conversation so much. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, it was a learning, even when you're being very intentional about trying to be inclusive, we miss the mark and we need yeah. to be called out and, and create a safe space where um, those who aren't feeling represented can call us out on, on what we missed. So there's accountability on all sides, even for the facilitators. Absolutely. And if there isn't, then, oh, we need to try again. <laughs> there needs to be, you know, 360 degrees of accountability. Um, if you really, truly want to make something that is co-owned, um, that is representative, that you know, is really moving the field forward versus, you know, this stagnant kind of, we're just doing the same things over and over sometimes. Our next case study is about a strategic collaboration that combines soccer and storytelling to improve gender equality and reproductive health in a community outside of Cape Town, South Africa. As Jessica described in the introduction, good collaboration is greater than the sum of its parts. Collaboration between Grassroots Soccer and Story Center added tremendous value to Grassroots Soccer's programming and continues to impact conversations about gender and health in the community. I spoke with Jen Warren, Strategic Communications Manager with Grassroots Soccer, to learn more. I think the ethos of sport for development um, is is quite special in in the sense of collaboration with communities as well as participatory design. Jen explained to me that grassroots soccer sport-based programming empowers girls to seek sexual and reproductive health services and provides a safe space to address harmful gender norms and violence. Grassroots Soccer trained soccer coaches to lead these conversations. However, Jen learned that many coaches weren't comfortable to speak about their own experiences with gender and health because they hadn't yet developed their own personal narratives as women. Jen explains. The coaches themselves are are peer mentors that are really based on the model um, that, that we use at Grassroots Soccer. They're ages 18 to 24. They're not that much older than their participants. Um, the participants are generally ages 10 to 18, and they're broken into different curricula. But within every curricula, the coaches are um, leading their kind of 14-week interventions with a coach's story. And they felt that they had the knowledge that they needed around sexual reproductive health and rights and prevention of of violence and gender-based violence um, to teach their younger participants, but they didn't actually feel like they had the um, the kind of coping skills that, that they would like, or that rather the knowledge that they had almost showed them that they didn't have what they needed in terms of the support and the coping skills. So we got to talking about how digital storytelling might be a way for them to address that. Jen was aware of Story Center, an international organization that supports individuals and organizations in using storytelling and participatory media for reflection, education, and social change, and applied for funding for them to come work with Grassroots Soccer's coaches. The result was a five-day storytelling workshop facilitated by Grassroots Soccer. 
even before the five days, actually, it starts with a lot of work um, around recruitment and explaining the kind of goals of the workshop and the story themes with the, the potential participants, in our case, the young women. So, so the first day is the story circle, and that's just really oral story sharing. And all of us in a group getting together, that we, we recommend that a, a social worker be present, as well as some co-facilitators. And in certain places, if a translator is needed, then, then, then that person will be brought in from the beginning as well. Um, so day one is about actually just sharing the stories and getting them down on paper, transcribing them. Um, day two is about recording the audio, um, actually narrating your own story. So day three um, is about photography training and getting out there and photo and video rather, um, where the, the women, the storytellers are, um, you know, we're creating a shot list that kind of goes along with their story and, um, and then going out into the community, to their homes, to... To, to take photographs or set up shots depending on what the storyteller wants to do. And then day four and five, in this case, um, we were um, at the American Corner in the Cape Town Central Library, which is a, a very cool space that's sponsored by the U.S. Consulate of Cape Town. Um, and they've got a maker space and digital classroom. So we were able to teach the video editing part of the workshop for the last two days in this beautiful um, production studio, essentially. Jen explained that when it comes to storytelling, the process is just as important, if not more important, than the result. The outcomes of the workshop, I think, for Story Center, um, and for me, and for a lot of people that, that are digital storytelling practitioners, is actually about the process itself, that it really becomes a healing mechanism for critical consciousness and for um, personal reflection, for, of course, storytelling itself is a, is a reflection tool. After the workshop, participants own the stories they produced and were free to share them as they wish. Some of the storytellers participated in the um, South Africa's first annual conference against violence um, that was held in Joburg in August of last year. They're sharing the stories within their own uh, work as well with their peers and fellow coaches at their trainings of new coaches um, with their participant, their older participants. I appreciate this example of collaboration because it goes beyond the organizational level. It's not just a collaboration between grassroots soccer and Story Center. It's happening among the women themselves in the workshop going through the process of learning about storytelling. Listen to Jen's description of a conversation she had with one of the participants of the program. One of the storytellers after the first day, um, I, I kind of had dropped her home. She lived quite nearby and I asked her you know, how the first day had gone for her. We had shared some really kind of personal stories. And, and she said to me, geez, you know, like this other participant of the workshop, she's a good friend of mine and we're neighbors. We live so close by. And I didn't even know she had experienced that. And actually I had experienced something similar. And had I known, then, you know, I might've been able to give her advice while she was going through it a few months back. I'm here with Barry Rabin, Senior Capacity Building Specialist on the USA Learn contract. Barry recently facilitated a collaborative process among an unlikely group of collaborators. 
Uh, this was a really excellent experience with the Guatemala Broad Agency announcement, identifying opportunities for youth. What is a broad agency announcement? A broad agency announcement is like USAID saying, here's this development challenge, we don't have all the answers, and making a call out to local organizations like corporations or nonprofits to say, help us solve this development challenge based on your experience. How would you approach this development challenge? Okay, so USAID puts a call out to local organizations, and how does the process work after that? Well, first of all, USAID makes a request for expressions of interest. And then the organizations that would like to respond, they can do this on their own or in a consortium, they submit an expression of interest. Then USAID chooses those that they'd like to take the next step with. And then those partners or the groups of uh, consortia are brought together to collectively develop a solution. And they do this with a concept note um, during what's called the co-creation phase of the BAA. Then if the mission selects these uh, concept notes, then they move on to the next phase, which is co-design, and then it's eventually co-investment. So what are the advantages of this collaborative process? I think collaborating is central to a broad agency announcement and, and co-creation activity. This represents a really big change in process and in roles. You have USAID and partners coming together from the very beginning and in real partnership, you know, as opposed to like with a bid where the partners kind of come in a, a little bit later. Mm-hmm. So on the one hand, this means an investment in time and effort up front for the partners. But at the same time, these partners would probably be spending this, the same amount of time or effort with a more traditional bidding process. But they also get to have an early say in approach right up front. And they also get to work up front uh, really closely with the USA team. So that's a real advantage. And what are the challenges there? Well, the partners are coming together for collective solutions. They're coming together to develop something Um, as a group when ordinarily they're competitors. The partners also really need time to build trust, at least in our experience with with the Guatemala BAA. They needed time to develop that trust with USAID, that USAID really does want to hear their views and see their proposals because they would often come back with questions like, but really what sector do you want us to focus on? Or how big a scope really is this? And the USAID team continually was reinforcing, no, this is for you to decide. We want to hear your proposals. So it sounds like a a pretty significant challenge to jump into that type of um, situation as a facilitator. What was your role in the workshop and how did you approach it? It was important to get everybody on the same page. And the way we did that was with reminding everybody of why we're here. You know, we're, we're all rallied around the same larger goal, and that's helping indigenous youth in the Western Highlands. We started by interviewing each of the partners. We wanted them to know that it was important what each of them had to say and and what each of them brought to the process. So we interviewed them, we listened carefully, we asked them questions like, given the goals of this workshop, you know, we're all going to come together, we want to come out of this workshop with a concept note, what do you need in order to get there? So they told us and, and we incorporated what they said into the design. We also, in wanting to give organizations the opportunity to, to be individuals as well, um, we held a virtual lessons learned dialogue. So this is where they could come to say, you know, given our experience in the sector, um, this is what we've learned about X, Y, and Z. Another thing that we did for the partners to get to know one another was to launch a learning lab online working group. Um, And here's where the organizations presented themselves, um, they gave introductions, and then we did use that um, online group, and it's still being used now, in fact, to um, communicate throughout the process. 
And another thing we did still before the workshop was we brought the partners together for a partner's fair and dinner. And this was a poster presentation that each of the organizations had the chance to give. And again, they were able to say, this is my organization, this is what we do, this is what we've learned. Um, we also set the tone from the beginning that it was important to take off that organizational hat and that in this initiative, everybody was working together and everybody would bring the best of what they had, but it was for the group. Um, transparency was another part of really building that trust. And this is um, kudos to the USA team who was very open with what information they did have and even if they didn't have information. So they, they were there to answer all the questions and to be as open and give all the information that they possibly could. And that really did help to build trust with the partners. You know, in addition to listening, which we felt was really important from the beginning with the interviews, during the workshop, we were checking in constantly with the USA team and with the workshop participants themselves to ask, how is this going? Are we reaching the goals that we set for ourselves? Um, is this on track? And we adapted the workshop as we went. We checked in throughout the day, we checked in in the evening for the next day, and we would see how things were going, and then we adapted according to that. So how did the workshop go? The workshop was really productive. We found there was a lot of trust and openness that had been built. And in fact, I knew that they were starting to kind of form their own partnership amongst them when in that virtual learning dialogue, one of the partners asked toward the end, um, is anybody in the capital city that wants to meet for coffee after our virtual dialogue? So that was kind of cool. Yeah. And the organizations really did work as one team. Um, there was a point at which we were not quite understanding as facilitators where the group was headed. And it was really beautiful to step back and watch them take complete ownership of that part of the workshop. And they started facilitating amongst themselves mm. and they had flip charts and they were in a circle really, you know, someone was leading the discussion and they really did lead themselves as one team. Um, they also organized on their own um, to meet and to work together to produce a concept note. So they really had bonded as a collective group. That's really neat. And what were your takeaways from facilitating this um, broad agency announcement co-creation process? Really, to the degree to which collaborating requires trust. And to get to that trust, in our experience, we found that listening, asking questions, listening, and then responding to what we, we heard from the people we asked, mm -hmm. um, that was really what built trust. You know, we adapted, we created according to what all those involved said needed to be the ingredients for this initiative to work. Before we wrap up, I want to explain something. By focusing on collaboration in this episode, we do not mean that it can or should be done without adapting and learning. Collaborating, learning, and adapting are inextricably linked. I asked Piers Bocock, Chief of Party on the USA Learn Contract, to describe what jazz can teach us about collaboration. Listen as learning and adapting make an appearance as well. Piers, what can jazz teach us about collaboration? Well, I appreciated you putting this question out to folks about who loved and appreciated jazz because that is one of the musical genres that resonates with me. Um, I was introduced to jazz when I was a kid trying to learn how to play the trumpet. And I loved the sound of the trumpet, but um, on its own didn't really um, sounded awful, frankly, when I tried to play it by myself. So when we talk about collaboration, um, it's not just 
a whole people, a whole bunch of people working side by side, doing stuff um, next to each other and calling that collaboration. When we talk about CLA, we talk about strategic collaboration. When you see a good jazz band play, um, they make it look effortless because there is a melody which everybody recognizes. But then there's improvisation and there's playing off with each other. And when you see that happen, uh, it's magic. And to me, uh, good collaboration is like seeing good live jazz that has that magic. You've got the melody, then you've got, and let's say it's a trumpet player playing the melody, and then you've got the piano player picks up the melody, and he, then everybody sort of steps back. And then the bass player has his piece, and everybody steps back. And then the drummer has his piece, and everybody steps back. And then when you see it all come back together, um, it gets people. It, it, you feel it. It's very hard to say how that worked, except that you know it's working. And the way you know it's working is that they have practiced, and they have practiced, and they have practiced. And they've gotten it wrong, but when they've gotten it, they've learned from it, when they've gotten it right, it, it all comes together. You can listen to a great jazz recording, and you can appreciate um, what went into that, but you know it was recorded. You can go to a, a big venue, you can go to a festival and see a band play and the audience gets into it and it drives off it. But a small venue, there, there's nothing like it because say you have a, a, a quartet or a quintet and you know maybe there is that band leader, the, the trumpeter or, or the pianist or the guitarist, it doesn't matter. They're the ones who are carrying the melody. But one of the rules, the sort of the standards of jazz is that everybody in the band has a role and gets a chance to show what they can do, gets a chance to solo. And when you get that opportunity to see that, and it's not just the band leader or the name the named person, and let's just call it, let's say it's the bass player, and he gets up there, and suddenly, you know, everybody else starts, you notice the piano player's playing softer, and, and uh, maybe the trumpeter, say, say it's Winton in this case, just puts his trumpet down, and he's just standing there watching, and the light, the spotlight is just on the bass player, the drummer's kind of put down his sticks, and you get lost in that, you see that this bass player's doing amazing stuff, and then, you see the other guys at some point, the drummer sort of picks up his sticks, the trumpeter picks up his trumpet and he sort of plays with the, the keys a moment and the, the piano player adjusts himself. You know that there's something they're listening for. They're waiting for that point that they have practiced where that solo is going to come back to the group performance and the melody and wrap up that song. And suddenly you realize that that's what's happening. And they all get it, and they all know, because they've been listening. Now that can be 30 seconds, it can be three minutes. I've seen drum solos go 10 minutes. It's, it is improvised, 
but they know what they're listening for, for the end of that solo. And then they're all ready to jump back in and do their part to get back to that song that everybody's listening for. And to me, that's what I see on, on a really good collaborative team. I see it on Learn. I see it in USA Admissions. I see it with some of our partners. You see somebody who knows what they're talking about. See a great facilitator who is able to draw out expertise and give space for someone to, to talk about what they're doing or to um, do their part in a collaboration. And everyone else on the team recognizes that that's their expertise. Let's let them do that, their part. And we're ready to come back in and do our part when the time is right. Visit USA Learning Lab to find the resources mentioned in this episode and share your thoughts on collaboration by tweeting at USA Learning. David Ratliff is our CLA sensei and Maciej Chavmielewski mixed the episode. The USA Learning Lab podcast is a production of USA Learn, implemented by Dexis Consulting Group and its partner, International Resources Group, a subsidiary of RTI on behalf of USAID's Office for Learning, Evaluation, and Research in the Bureau of Policy, Planning, and Learning. The opinions in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the United States government.